You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, June 16th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake, and here with me today is Darius Dow, founder of 42 Macro and RV's own Weston Nakamura. And I'm so glad both of you are here with me today because we've had huge moves and important developments across so many asset markets and geographies. I want to try to touch on as many as possible. So we're closing out the U.S. session with major losses in equities. It looks like in the last few minutes, they may have ever so slightly come off their lows. I don't even know if we could say that's a good sign or just exhaustion, but the Nasdaq closing down 4%, S&P somewhere around uh, 3%. And we had small caps getting killed today. But I think, again, they're a little bit off their lows. Yields on U.S. Treasuries, Bell backing off those 11-year highs as recession fears increase. We saw a plunge in U.S. housing starts, a spike in mortgage rates, a weak Philly Fed. Add to that an emergency ECB meeting, an announcement that they're putting a tool in place to limit bond spreads between countries like Germany and Italy. We saw the Swiss central bank hike rates for the first time in 15 years. And I didn't even get to everything. I mean, Darius, the magnitude of the moves, the confluence of all these headlines— I, you know, I mean, it makes me worried. It seems like things are very fragile right now. I mean, can financial markets sort of handle this all at once? No, absolutely not. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing on the tape. Obviously, big down day in stocks, big down day in crypto, following some pretty big down days, obviously. I think what's happening right now is the whole entire world, the whole entire professional investment and retail investment communities are readjusting their exposure to markets to acknowledge the fact that this is a Federal Reserve that's comfortable with engineering a recession in order to get inflation under control. And that's a little bit different than where a lot of investors have been, certainly not us. We've been warning you guys about this for a long time, uh, but that's where that's different than where a lot of investors have been uh, throughout this year. And so, Weston, the, the thing that I didn't add to that list. And what I want you to really talk about is the Bank of Japan meeting today, today your time, tomorrow for us, because it's morning in Asia. Um, You have been talking about this and preparing us and telling us we needed to pay attention to this and why it was so important. And this meeting, I think, comes at a time that we couldn't have even anticipated is so fragile with so much happening right now. So, you know, walk us through what you're watching as we wait for this really important policy announcement and why it matters so much. Uh, sure. So um, 
basically it's the timing wise is funny just because bank japan is the last of all like you know i was kind of laughing when you were going through all of these central banks that like you know the sme and all that um hiking rates and um and boj is the last one to go um so what i've been saying since you know late january or so was i was flagging that you have to watch the bank of japan they are the only uh major central bank um that is go- going to be easing not just not hiking or tightening policy but easing into you know uh, global inflation and they're going to be the only central bank uh left with providing accommodative policies after a decade of doing so and uh, you know and then having every central bank just kind of remove that and so what are the consequences of that? What's going to happen? And it can be Bank of Japan and their yield curve control and holding 25 basis points um, cap on their 10 year uh, yield. You know, can they do that? Will they do that? What happens if they cannot or will not? Um, you're going to see, you know, if they if they are unable to hold that 25 basis point line, then you're going to see a pop in JGB yields, obviously, and then you're going to see a, a massive spike in sovereign yields globally, and then that's going to just destroy risk assets. And then on Monday of this week, we saw uh, you know, a throat slitting cross asset globally of everything. Um, and you know, that was coinciding with, of course, triggered by CPI on Friday from the US, but that was triggered by uh, the BOJ lost control of yield curve control on Monday. And that's when you saw, you know, because Monday was especially bad. We're used to kind of sell-offs year to date, but Monday was, you know, especially bad. That is what happens. Um, this is what I was was warning about. So this is why you should care. Um, meeting hasn't even happened yet. So meeting is, uh, yeah, in a few hours um, later today, Kuroda press conference is going to be at uh, 3.30 p.m. after market close. And then we'll see what happens after that. So, so Weston, as you're talking, like, I can't help but notice that we are the doom squad here. I mean, I, everybody knows I like to rock some color. I just couldn't pull it out today. I was like, I'm like, I I have anxiety about what's happening. I'm nervous. I don't like what I'm seeing, (laughs) but we do, we look like we're all attending a funeral. Um, that's my excuse. What's up with you, with your, with your, are you, are you vibing that as well? Uh, yes, this is uh, uh, kind of funeral-esque. Um, this is Mr. Kuroda. Um, uh, I have a nice little candle. I have some, some roses. So basically what this is, is um, I, was, uh, I was trying to work on a video for like a, you know, a, a guide for BOJ beforehand. Um, couldn't get it done. That's why I'm doing this. But my point is that um, people are putting on the Widowmaker trade. And for those who are not familiar with that, what that is, is shorting JGBs. Um, if you short JGBs, you will die essentially and leave a widow um and so people are putting because that trade you can't up, beat right? the bank of japan right is that why it's been, of, yeah, right. so traditionally exactly. that's why no one wanted to do that because you'd be fundamentally it makes yeah fundamentally it makes perfect sense right mostly dead 250 debt to gdp i mean like little greece when they were blowing up the european union that they were like 120 percent debt gdp you know bank uh, or japan is 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 twice that um you are japan will default on its debt you're not going to they're not going to be able to pay back its principal on the debt so you know shorting jdb sounds like a fundamentally good answer until you have people like this running the central bank um and buying up you know half of of jgb issuance and so that the most indebted country in the world can borrow far cheaper 40 years out than the united states government can for 6 months out um and so this short JGB trade, this Widowmaker trade, what that is, is there are people that are betting that in a few hours, the Bank of Japan will be forced to uh, expand the yield curve control band that's currently set at 25 basis points. 
and they're going to move it to wh- wherever it is that they move it. And should they do that, that's going to, you know, it's, that's negative for bond prices. Um, and that's why you're also seeing a bid in uh, in the yen. So dollar yen was had been, you know, surging. The yen, the worst form currency, uh, major currency against the dollar year, year to date. Um, and that's because you can either you can do one or the other. You can either cap JGBs and put this artificial lid on the JGB market, but then the currency gets destroyed uh, because yield spread widened between the U.S. and uh, Japan. Or you allow uh, JGB yields to climb up alongside in tandem with the rest of global yields. Yield spreads collapse and dollar yen would fall and the yen would sort of weaken. So that's why yen's been stable. But the reason for this whole funeral setup is that Indeed, I agree that widows at the end of the day will be made. The question is, will they be widows of traders' spouses or will they be or will it be Mrs. Kuroda? And we'll find out. We will. Grim, grim as that is, grim as that gallo humor is, um, it, it, it does feel like we are we are in this battle. The market is in a battle with the Bank of Japan. Correct. Yeah, at, so yeah, so um, what the Bank of Japan does is there. There's two ways that they buy JGBs. Uh, one's called a competitive auction. That's a pre-scheduled sort of auction, uh, a pre-scheduled sort of you know a set amount of you know we're, we're going to buy X amount of JGBs at this tenor on this date, and that's what they do. Fixed rate operation is when they are targeting the ten-year JGB yield, um, and they're bid for unlimited. We will buy an unlimited amount of bonds to make sure the ten-year JGB yield stays at twenty-five basis points uh, or lower. Um, this week on Tuesday and Wednesday, they did a record amount, the most they've ever done, um, you know, something along the lines of two or three trillion, uh, yen, uh, worth of JGB buying. Uh, they did additional buying. They, they're basically, they're really just running out of kind of options. Like what I was saying on, um, on Twitter was that it's kind of like, you know, when you run out of shampoo and then you just basically fill the shampoo bottle with water and you shake yeah. and lather. That's what the BOJ <laughs> is doing right now. <laughs> You don't just grab the bar of soap in your head. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so this, we, so we they're are. they're really you know they're really in a, a tough spot right now. But if the BOJ doesn't you know like if they if they don't um so if they don't kind of if they maintain current policy the yen will be will get continue to get destroyed. Uh, and that's bad um, for for everybody, not just for Japan. And then if they do uh, widen the you know the the band, then you're going to see a fixed income you know duration you know uh, a sell off, and and that's going to be continue to be bad for risk assets as well. So it's very very tough to uh, see what the like. I don't really care what the policy is going to be, but what the market response is going to be is very yeah. difficult. I think, and that's it's tough. And again, coming at a time when we've got all these other shocks to the system, I think is what's worrying. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Darius, weigh in here. And we have a question from um, DJW on the RV site. What happens to U.S. bonds if Japan can't hold uh, the yield con- yields curve control? I mean, I think this is, yep. this is where it all ties together. That's what you're worried about, Weston. Darius, are you also, do you share those concerns? 
Yeah. So if you're in my opinion, that's the last remaining tail risk if, as it relates to the overall bond market. Um, if you go back to uh, to Wednesday and oh, by the way, let me before I even go there, the big of Japan could do whatever it wants. They're not constrained by any bounds. It's more just a political decision to remove uh, the wheel curve control policy or intervene in the end in terms of the Ministry of Finance. But just going back to answering the question, I think that's the last remaining tail risk that the market is concerned about with respect to pricing in, um, you know, the growth slowdown, the long end of the curve. Because I think that one of the uh, one of the, the chief tail risks was the bond market sort of uh, undecidedness around whether this was a Federal Reserve that was committed to quashing inflation and ultimately doing whatever it takes to borrow a line from our friend Draghi um, in order to get that done. I think prior to Wednesday, the market was sort of um, 50-50 on that in terms of, you know, is this Fed going to back off too soon and allow inflation to long-term inflation expectations to, to, to remain unanchored? Or is this Fed willing to do what it takes on the, on the growth slowdown fund to get it done? And I think Powell was very clear about that. The last from in this, this tail risk outside of the BOJ, clearly with the Bank of or with, uh, the Japan having the second largest uh, sovereign debt market in the world, you know, they're a very important player in terms of institutional allocations uh, with respect to sovereign debt exposure. You know, you think about pension funds, and including Japanese pension funds, insurers, asset managers, et cetera. So if you had a sharp repricing lower in price in JGBs or sharp repricing higher in yields, that is going to have cavernous ripple effects all across global sovereign debt markets and obviously across global equity markets, et cetera, just from a valuation perspective. So, uh, we, you know, we got to get through this catalyst. I'm not even sure that this is the appropriate catalyst because they may choose to do nothing. And this may remain a risk or an overhang on the market uh, for the next few months. Yeah, that's a great point. And so, Weston, I mean, that is that is the other option, right? I mean, there, you know, somebody is, and we, the people presumably will have to cover some of their positions if if nothing happens. Um, does it feel yeah. like that's also a real possibility? And and before we let you go, where are we going to see this? Like, what should aside from following you on Twitter because I know you're essentially going to be live tweeting this, which we thank you for. Um, but where, where, you know, what are you going to be? Is it forex? Is it bonds? Is it where are we going to see the break if it happens? Um, okay, so first of all, I just want to say, because this came up on Twitter earlier, um, the JGB market, the yield like that you see on be it trading view, be it whatever it is, it's, you know, there are so many different sources. Fixed income is not um, like stocks or like listed derivatives, like options and all that kind of thing. Um, there are many different prices. So don't like anchor yourself to one price and think like, okay, they've broken the, you know, actually just kind of check around different sources. Just want to put that out there. Um, but you know, like Darius is, is totally right. Um, you know, like it, th think about it, like if you're a fixed income manager, right? You're basically having the worst year of your career year to date. Um, and JGBs actually have been the safe haven for fixed income because there's been an actual corona put. So if you're um, relying on that and you've maybe even become complacent and then suddenly JGBs are not only blowing past, you know, above that 25 basis point, like supposed floor. But now you're, you know, this this guaranteed policy is now in question for Friday and all that. That's going to have markets extremely jittery because, you know, that was not something that people had sort of, you know, um, had had been, uh, you know, even considering, let, it, let alone pricing in. So I think that there's a lot of people on the fence right now. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of volatility uh, either way. The thing that I'll say is that if they if they do expand the band um, with regards to, you know, institutional capital flows, my originally my answer would have been like, yeah, then you'd probably see a sell off in treasuries and a spike in yields. Um, but 
you know, again, if the reason that they were not buying, if the Japanese, you know, pension insurance, um, you know, community, if they were not buying U.S. Treasuries and selling U.S. Treasuries uh, throughout March and all that, um, because of an FX volatility issue and a hedging cost issue, um, and then you know they and and the BOJ does expand the the uh, YCC band, then the yen will stabilize. And if the yen stabilizes, you might actually get a bid into treasuries. So right, so that's why it's like it's very you know I'm very sort of split on like the the, the sort of outcomes. What I'll be watching um, for the most part is the futures market, the JGB futures market, which represents mostly foreign institutional or foreign investors. Um, and the uh, like the sort of the spot dollar yen um, rate, as well as like, um, you know, trading activity from Japan retail uh, on on the currency as well, um, as well as Treasury futures and all that and see to see how much they're kind of correlated. But uh, the last point I'll make, uh, Maggie, is that, yes, tomorrow is a or today is a BOJ policy meeting day. However, when you have a central bank that is involved actively involved in the markets every single day, putting out statements, changing policy statements intraday and all that. Bank of Japan has a monetary policy meeting every day, yeah. multiple times a day. Yeah. So this doesn't end on Friday. This doesn't uh, end, you know, this really just is kind of the beginning, um, but this is not going to quell anytime soon. So that's an, that's an excellent point, um, Weston. And you've just been all over this. It's been such fantastic work. I know that you're going to have a long stretch ahead of you. Um, so everyone follow Weston. Um, we'll have him on Real Vision, of course, but follow him on Twitter for the very latest. Um, and he doesn't give you investment advice. He's just telling you what to pay attention to and why it matters to your portfolio so you can prepare yourself and adjust your risk. Weston, you're awesome. Thank you. I'm going to let you go. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Darius. <laughs> Yeah, so Darius, let's let's dive into some questions here because I mean there's just so much to cover. Um, and Ross from the exchange asking, um, you've been flagging a transition from inflation to deflation in the U.S. markets. What do you expect to see in market price action or market response that would confirm your view? He's also asking if there's another leg down in the S and P. Um, is that is that something that would confirm it? And what would be driving that? So it's sort of a twofold question. Yeah, so I'll start with the easy answer first is, uh, yes, it's very likely there's another leg down the S&P. Uh, you know, for most of this year, we've, been, we've put out a 3,200 to 3,400 uh, bot zone uh, for a durable bottom in stocks on the S&P 500. Obviously, you could infer what that means for other assets like Bitcoin, crypto, et cetera. Um, so, yes, I do believe there will be another leg lower. It doesn't necessarily we have to see that, you know, over the next several weeks. I mean, there's a couple sort of uh, big dynamics with respect to the options market um, in terms of how chunky, how large this OPEX is likely, is it, it will be on Friday. You know, it's as big as it was going back to March 2020. And obviously, as we know, that that was a big catalyst in terms of uh, sparking a, 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 a durable bottom in stocks back then. Certainly was in 2018 as well. Obviously, the macro setup is very different. We are not, we're very uh, far away, in our opinion, from a, a Federal Reserve dovish pivot. So um, if we do see any sort of uh, relief rally on OPEX, it's got to be sold if, you're, if you want to protect your portfolio. In terms of uh, the transition to deflation, you know, to, you know, we we you know, we monitor all the same things that we monitor every morning. At Forty two macro, we refresh all the exact same models, and one of the most important models to determining that would be our global macro risk matrix. In that matrix, there are forty two different market indicators uh, that we score from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal. And right now, the most important one, of, uh, most important set of those that will give us a, a clear indication on the market starting to pivot to pricing in 
deflation rather than inflation. The deflation is where both growth and inflation are slowing, as opposed to inflation, which is where infl- growth is slowing, but inflation is still accelerating to the upside. Um, that pivot is, you know, will be sort of um, foretold by some breakdowns, at least from a bullish fam's perspective to at least a neutral fam's perspective across the rates and spreads, currencies in our in our model. And we're just not seeing that yet. Um, it's still mm-hmm. quite early in that process. Is it, is it you know, it, it, we the, a lot of market veterans say, you know, it's never this time's different. You know, there's always there's always sort of lessons to be pulled through and not to get hoodwinked by the idea that things are completely different this time. But um, is it going to be harder for inflation for that? that deflationary to set in, growth could slow, but is inflation likely to slow in the way it normally would when we have all these other factors that are influencing it? You know, could we be in that more stagflationary situation where growth slows, maybe even slams lower, but we're stuck with high inflation because of the supply side that that the Fed can't really address? Yeah, that's very true. Um, you know, but I, I think that's sort of a, you know, I've been very vocal on this program and others all year about how that's a misnomer. And, and if you understood that that was a misnomer, you also understood that the Fed was going to be more hawkish than the median investor would have anticipated. And is certainly paying the price for, for not anticipating at this point in juncture. There's a broad basedness of inflation in the United States of America that is very separate and apart from the sort of consensus narrow focus on food and energy prices rising. Obviously, we have a food and energy crisis globally, you know, uh, perpetuated by the, you know, the, the, the tragic incidences in, in Ukraine. But the reality is when you look at uh, inflation on a median basis across every single item in the basket, goods, services, it's actually accelerating to an all-time high. You look mm-hmm. at it, it's a 5.5% on a year-over-year basis. Uh, that's an all-time high. It's up 6.4% on a three-month annualized basis. That's an all-time high. And then when you look at something like core services inflation, which has absolutely nothing to do with food and energy prices, you know, you look at that, that's accelerating to uh, 5.2% on a year-over-year basis as the fastest print we've seen since June of 91, and up 7.8% on a three-month annualized basis. That's the fastest print we've seen since August of 1990. So I'm, I'm quite frankly, I'm, I'm really sick of this very narrow focus on supply-driven inflation when the reality is the U.S. has a demand problem. We dumped $6 trillion of fiscal stimulus into the economy and we're acting like, you know, nobody did it. We didn't see anything. <laughs> And oh, by the way, I'm wearing I'm wearing black, too. Yes, exactly. Because I think that we all feel like it's just appropriate for this moment. You know, there's like a seriousness to what's going on, frankly, that I think has us all concerned. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. So interesting question from Paul, and I think this links to the options when you see me looking around, folks, by the way, I'm, I'm looking at all the great questions that are coming in. So keep them coming. We'll get to as many as we can. But if not, you know, if you put them on the exchange and throughout all of our shows, we'll try to address them. Um, but you mentioned the options expiration. And when I was talking to Tony Greer earlier this week, he's like, listen, also bracing for down, but 
but conscious of the fact that you could have a sort of face ripping rally up at some point that may not be sustained, but you know, it's just, it's just a product of the volatility that we're in. This is Casey's question. Um, Hey guys, I've been preparing my mindset for the possibility of having money somewhere down the road when risks assets become very illiquid. I also think they mean very sold down. Any tips on accumulating responsibly is the rule of not buying more than 2% of daily volume accurate. I'm literally playing a very long game. Thank you for adding that. So I'm not ruling it out. Thanks a lot. It's a great question. Great to include the time frame. I think a lot of people are looking at this kind of market action and saying, hmm, maybe I can pick some stuff up if I am a long-term investor. How do you how do you think about that, um, Darius, given the volatility though? Are, are there any tips on how to do it responsibly? Yeah, I mean, look, if you if you want to pretend like valuation is a catalyst and be my guest, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly not chastising the, the investor with the question because I think it's a very reasonable question to ask. But what that there's two things about the question. One, it tells me that the market psychology hasn't changed enough yet. Mm-hmm. Bear markets don't bottom when people hop on real vision asking, you know, what what can I buy? When do I buy? Bear markets bottom when people are puking and concerned on real vision about having to sell their house to pay for their kids' college tuition. That's mm-hmm. how bear markets bottom. And so, you know, I have this phrase at 42 Macro that I think is very appropriate for now and will always be very appropriate from the perspective of managing risk, which is you don't buy when there's blood in the streets. You buy when there's a catalyst to come clean the blood up. And there's very clearly no catalyst from a liquidity cycle perspective or a growth cycle perspective that is over the near term that's going to cause you from sort of, that's going to spare you from suffering uh, a more drawdown in your portfolio if you start to make those kinds of bets today. Right. So I think that's a great answer, Casey. So yeah, things look cheap from their high, but you need other other parts of the equation to plug in maybe um, and, and really sort of understand that before you want to, because you can dollar cost average down into that bear market and it's not going to feel good, even if you have a long game. And um, lots of folks that have come on, lots of technicians, Ms. Schneider talks about the difficulty of coming back from a drawdown. Um, I, I want to, it's, these are such important questions. I'm so happy you're putting them on because this is a really difficult time. People are in a lot of pain. People have lost a lot of money. People are watching their nest egg shrink. And one thing that's really helpful is listening to people who've been through it all, who've learned, survived and learned really hard lessons about risk. Peter Brandt is one of those voices. Mark Ritchie sat down with him as part of a series that we have on the website. It's about managing risk. Let's play a clip of that and then we'll talk on the other side. I've been around this business. This is my 48th year. You know, I'm really looking forward to two more years in which I'd be able to say, I've lasted 50 years as a trader. I still love it. That's why I do it. I still love it. Uh, But 50 years, I've run across a lot of people who really talk big but never made it. And I've been around a lot of guys who had it figured out. They knew what trading was about. And when you talk to guys that really have accomplished themselves as a trader, they become craftsmen in the business of trading. What you hear is take small losses. What you hear is you don't worry about the big, the, the big game. You know, the, trading is not about being right. It's about minimizing, minimizing your losses when you're wrong. 
Love Peter Brandt. Um, that full interview is available on our website for Essential Plus and Pro members. It's a really timely conversation. We're really trying to, you know, push in that direction and talk about risks and the difficulty of navigating these really volatile markets. And no one's exactly been through this before because the circumstances are different, but there's a lot, um, you know, a lot of lessons that you can, can pull forward. Darius, I know in addition to what you talked about, you've been sort of tweeting about uh, conventional mistakes that people tend to make at these times that they really need to be careful about, right? I mean, there is no substitute for experience, whether it be in life, in the military, on the gridiron, I play football. There's, there's, there's no substitute for how the game slows down when, you, when you've been through it all. And, and so yeah. it's very important for young investors, young risk managers, traders, et cetera, to sort of, you know, it, it, make sure you're, you're paying attention to folks with gray hair in these types of environments because they've seen it all. They have been it all. You know, I've seen enough and I've certainly spent, you know, you know, many 100 hour weeks studying, uh, you know, the sort of uh, careers of folks like that. And there are sort of three things that I've learned from them that I try to help teach to our, our subscribers and clients at 42 Macro. And, and number one, you know, just three sort of core risk management lessons. Number one, you can't all, all your positions can't have the same duration. And what I mean by this is you can't be looking out at the same spot in the future. It's expecting all of your trades to work at that specific spot or needing all your trades to work on that same spot, which is sort of goes hand in hand with the number two mistake, which is a lot of investors all require the same catalyst to work across all their positions. Like, oh, I need the Fed balance sheet to expand to have all my lungs go up or, you know, I need the Fed balance sheet to contract to have all my shorts go down. And my whole portfolio is, you know, one full bet, which, you know, takes me right into the third, um, third, third, third of three risk management sort of corollaries, which is, you know, there is always a range of probable outcomes when you're talking about risk management, risk management is an ex anti exercise. It's, you know, we don't know the future. No one knows the future, no matter how much experience or, or, or good data that you might have, because data is always backward looking. So you want to have a portfolio that's well constructed to account for the range of probable outcomes. Now, there might be a very, you know, sort of narrow uh, distribution with a high kurtosis, i.e., there's a very clear, you know, sort of um, likely outcome, or there might be a flat distribution with a very limited amount of kurtosis. And, and about and left to credit tales that tells you, hey, look, you need to have different types of bets on that might survive, you know, this sort of broad range of outcomes. So that's certainly something we help investors do at 42 Macro. And I'm glad uh, we got a chance to uh, listen to Peter Brandt's view on that. Yeah. It, it, thanks so much. So, you know, if, if, if you're talking or you're nervous and you're talking to your financial advisor, you're listening to this, ask them more than just diversification, right? It's easy to say you need to be diversified, but think about some of this language so that you can see if they're, they're thinking about helping you construct a portfolio um, that makes sense against many of these more nuanced questions. I think that's so very useful. I want to see if we can uh, sneak a couple more in here, Darius. What do you think? Okay. Well, yeah, one, fi one final thing, just on diversification, it's not about the exposures themselves or the tickers. That's not what diversification is. Diversification is understanding that you want to have different durations for your trades. Yep. You want to have different catalysts for the trades to work. And you want to account for the range of full, the full range of probable outcomes from a growth, inflation and policy perspective. That's it. Yeah. Uh, well said. Well said. And that's why we're, we're, we're really trying to lean into the learnings from all this when we're learning in real time, but we're trying to get as many people on as we can that can give you some of this information so that you can think about how to survive this. Cause this, this kind of feels like what we're at. You, you know, you want to watch your risk and you want to get through this. So you live to fight another day. As somebody just said to me today, question, um, how do you explain ARC not making new lows where QQQ and SPY are making new lows? Um, you know, are there people barking hunting in this area? Because that seems like it would be getting crushed with everything else. Yeah, no, that right now there's, I mean, there's clearly speculation in the market 
that we're likely to start to see, uh, you know, sort of a, a inflows into the long end of the, the treasury market curve into the long end of, uh, you know, sort of more, um, you know, sort of more core sovereign debt markets. And obviously that's going to start to improve the prospects for something like ARC, particularly on a relative basis to sort of more cyclical exposures, you know, the kinds of cyclical exposures that investors have crowded into uh, year to date. Uh, I'm not so sure that if the S&P 500 goes from where it is today to 3,400 or 3,200, ARC's not going to make new lows. But I certainly wouldn't be betting on, you know, once we do make that market regime transition to deflation, and certainly we'll call that out for our uh, clients and subscribers of 42 Macro, I'm not so sure I would be betting on pressing ARC shorts. I think at that point in time, you're going to be pressing energy shorts and financial shorts and industrial shorts and all the stuff that has not uh, let the market to lower because that's that's the recession tree. Yeah. Last question I think we're going to have time for. DXY appears to have peaked. What's Darius's take on this? It, yeah, it may have. I mean, I, I've been I've been explicitly neutral on the dollar for about a month now. We were, you know, very ragingly long dollar and 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 sort of you know short anti dollar exposures like emerging market local currency debt, you know, frontier markets, et cetera. Uh, and you know, we booked those 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 gains uh, a, a few weeks ago. And and quite frankly, I think it's very difficult to have an understanding of where the dollar is because on one hand, clearly the the liquidity cycle, you know, particularly coming out of the Federal Reserve relative to something like the ECB is actually getting incrementally dollar supportive and certainly has this week. But on the other hand, when you talk about going into a recession and the ultimate damage that's likely to do to the profit cycle and the growth outlook here in the US, you know, there's about $7 trillion of growth capital that's flooded into the United States of America in the last couple of years that I think might actually go find a home elsewhere in cheaper markets and markets that look like um, they might have less hawkish central banks or central banks that are further along in their tightening curve and are about to pivot. And so to me, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. And, you know, you, that's one one final lesson I leave everybody with. You don't need to know the answer to everything. If you have a process and the process is good and it's repeatable, and sometimes you don't get the right answer that you hope to get out of it from a financial risk management perspective, then just leave it alone. Just keep it on your whiteboard. You don't have to put it in your portfolio. You don't have to be long and short everything at all times. You want to go to where your best ideas are and you want to size them appropriately across, you know, different themes and different durations and different catalysts. Excellent advice, Darius. Thank you so much for that. Uh, these are really these are really trying times, you know, and so people just have to sort of, you know, try to try to keep your head and try to, you know, remember what your time horizon is. And for some people, hopefully that's long term and, you know, they'll have some powder dry to get through this and there'll be some opportunities. Ash is going to be here same time tomorrow with Michael Gaiad. Again, think of a better person to close the week out with. Michael spent much of his career trying to build instruments to deal exactly with this kind of volatility. So I'm so curious to see what he has to say about what's going on. He was actually my guest this week on our podcast, My Life in Four Trades, where he explains his work and how his life experience led him down that path. It was a really honest and moving conversation about overcoming loss. I hope you can all go check it out. Um, Peter Brandt is there. Um, as well as a whole bunch of other people that we have on our show. And it's sort of a different side of their trades. They're two best and they're two worst. And really, it's about how they overcame difficult times like the one we're in, what they learned from their trades, the best and the worst. So um, it's it's really interesting 
sort of human side of their story, but also some really, really good advice to take away. So um, you can get that wherever you download your podcast. Check it out. Use the number four when you search the My Life in Four Trades. Um, so Michael will be here giving all of his advice on the market. And of course, as we said, you know where to find Darius on Twitter. Weston's going to be live tweeting around the Bank of Japan. It's going to be a really important day tomorrow. So hang in there, take care, and good luck out there. Can I, can I, can I close out with one final statement? Sure. I just want to say thank you to Rob Paul and you guys and your whole team at Real Vision. The amount of sort of data and information and strategy and real wisdom that's coming out of a free program or some of the programs you guys have behind the paywall in such a very, very angsty time like this is incredible. I mean, go back to 2008 when all you had was CNBC or even the last few years where all you had was a lot of dog barking by nonsensical investors who constantly pounding the table and, you know, and taking victory laps and this like that. What we're getting right now is a world-class education that is designed to help people. And I just want to thank you guys for that because it's really awesome. No, that's so nice for you to say that, Darius. And that really is the mission that they built the company to try to sort of educate people on. That's why I joined, because there's a lot of information that they just don't, even the most well-meaning outlets sometimes just don't have the time. It takes a long time. I mean, I talked to David Rosenberg for an hour <laughs> yesterday. Right. That's a long time. And these people are coming on because they're very concerned and they, I think, want to share what they know and they don't want people to lose their shirts. So, you know, we can only do it because all of you come on um, to try to help everyone. So I think it's a collective effort. It's a community. Um, and we're, we're super pumped about it. Um, yeah. hopefully we can all get through it. I think we will. There's always, uh, the other side, right? So despite our, despite our black outfits, we're, we're optimistic information is power. So take it, um, and come back with us tomorrow, guys. Thanks so much. What's up revolutionaries. Thanks for tuning in to the real vision daily briefing for more content like this. Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.